Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The start of a second wave or the ripples of the first one. An uptick in coronavirus cases across the continent and a spike in parts of northern England has seen further lockdown easing halted and prompted the UK government to wargame its options. Citywide lockdowns? A border on the M25? What can those in power across the UK do to control cases and what has been learned from the first attempts to local lockdowns? And if the pressures aren't going away, are public services any better prepared to deal with whatever comes next? Our new report published on Monday explored how fit public services were to deal with the coronavirus crisis. Spoiler alert, they weren't very prepared. We're going to ask why and what they could be doing next. And then we're going to turn to the House of Lords, our third section, where we take a look at the latest round of political appointees, among them a Brexit-backing cricketer, the Prime Minister's brother, and the owner of the Evening Standard. So what next for Parliament's upper house? Is this the sleazy side of British democracy or an old institution that really still works very well? I've got a great panel to discuss all of this. Hannah White, our Deputy Director and the former clerk in the House of Commons. Hi, Hannah. Hiya. Nick Davies, who leads our public services work and was the main author of the report I was just talking about into public services. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And I'm delighted to be joined as well by Jen Williams, Politics and Investigations Editor for the Manchester Evening News. Jen, hello. Hi, nice to be here. Let's start with the so-called Ring of Steel. Late last Thursday, the government announced that millions of people in parts of Manchester, West Yorkshire and East Lancashire would be subject to new local lockdown restrictions. And then came reports that Number 10 was exploring options to avoid a winter, even autumn, spike in COVID-19 cases. Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, and Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, both complained about the way measures were proposed without their involvement. Meanwhile, in Scotland, a surge of cases in Aberdeen has seen Nicola Sturgeon shut pubs and reimpose lockdown. Jen, how did you find out about the changes in Manchester? Uh, I heard whispers uh, on Thursday evening that something might be coming, um, but there was no clear understanding of what the measures would be, when they would be announced or how they would be announced. So eventually, Matt Hancock um, appeared on Twitter and um, gave uh, a sort of fairly abrupt rundown of the new measures that would be introduced in um, parts of the North West and West Yorkshire. uh, And that was accompanied by a video clip. Two hours later, the Department of Health and Social Care put out uh, the more detailed guidance, which uh, seemed to conflict somewhat with what Matt Hancock had said. Um, So Matt Hancock had focused on uh, not allowing social visitors into your house, basically. And that was what he referred to when he when the announcement came out. Um, The Department of Health and Social Care guidance went much further than that and talked about not being able to go in each other's gardens and also restrictions on going to. Uh, pubs and uh, and restaurants um we then spent friday trying to find out what the situation was with meeting up outside the pub which of course ahead of a hot weekend in high summer is quite a key thing that our readers were asking and it took us until five thirty on the friday to get clarification that you could meet another household outside the pub it then took until tuesday day afternoon for the legislation to be published and the legislation then said something slightly different again so yeah the the clarity has been has been pretty lacking I would say. So right now about a week afterwards uh, from, from all these new measures coming in do you think people understand why those measures have been introduced? 
I think some people understand broadly um, the the rationale that underpins it. I think the measures themselves are pretty poorly understood. And I think one of the problems has been that people can't follow the logic. So what a lot of people have said to us is, so I can't go and sit in my friend's garden, but people can still go and meet outside beer gardens and I can see them and I can see that they're not socially distancing. And there's definitely been some public anxiety around that. There was a big spike in calls to Greater Manchester Police this weekend from people concerned about coronavirus related things. They actually had the highest number of calls since May the 31st this weekend, immediately after the measures were introduced. And I think a lot of that is people seeing things going on that they recognise as being, you know, not within the guidance at the same time as they're being told, I can't go around and see my friend. The other thing that came up immediately is the implications for childcare. You can still have a paid um, registered childcare person around your house to look after your kids. But unless the if you've got informal arrangements and the person who's been doing that is not in your social, uh, your support bubble, then you can't. And I think there's quite a lot of frustration from people who were being told to go back to work by the government just at the same time as they were finding they were losing their um, informal childcare arrangements. So that's been another issue as well. Fascinating. We can, we can all feel for that. And are, are people, just to be clear, are people still feeling uh, that they're encouraged to go back to work this week, even while all these things come into come into play? <sighs> Honestly, I don't know, because I think the, the messaging is so mixed now. It's probably going to depend on your employer. I think a lot of people feel that there is an expectation on them to go back now and don't feel comfortable with it. Um, other people have got employers who are hedging their bets and still keeping people at home. So I think it depends on the business uh, in question. I think the messaging has now got so muddled up and there was a bit of an inevitability to that as we move towards more localised measures that people would be hearing one message from central government and another message locally. And that was always a risk. But I think that this could have been done in a much clearer manner and that should have been factored in because who are you listening to within this people people the more cynical let's say would say that that's a constructive ambiguity because the government wants the economy to still be running and it wants to take this window while we've got good weather for the for the economy to still be to be uh, still up and running but at the same time want people to take measures to reduce the um yeah. spread of the virus but people for public health messaging to work, particularly when it's very difficult to actually enforce people stopping people from going in each other's houses, the messaging has to be crystal clear. And I think I don't think I've spoken to anybody who thinks that's been the case over the last week. Hannah, what do you reckon? I mean, should we have a bit of sympathy for number 10? They've talked about a whack-a-mole strategy and they do seem to have taken the point now that they have to move very fast when these things happen and communication isn't easy. Sure, I think that's right. And this obviously going to be a trade-off between speed of response and you know they've put a, a lot of emphasis on uh you know having the data to enable them to to act rapidly when there seems to be a local flare-up um and doing that quickly versus being able to um as jen said be clear with people so that people know what's expected of them and you know obviously this is an evolving situation and the exact sort of parameters of what you want to do in terms of locking people back down in different areas might be different because the the characteristics of the flare-up might be different they might be uh related to a you know place of work or it might be a more more sort of more general way in which um 
people behaving in a, in a particular area. And so you might want to do different things. But it, it does seem that the government has sort of been remarkably um, unclear in some circumstances, sort of announcing that people are going to have to do things, you know, at midnight, a few hours beforehand, without the guidance being available. Um, and yet, you know, the guidance is published, you know, a day or, or two later, and, it, and it's fully there. So, you know, why couldn't it have been put out at the same time? Why why was the public announcement um, made before the guidance could be there so that, that people like Jen, journalists, um, and, and people as we've said, trying to decide, make decisions about whether to, to bring their staff into work can refer to that guidance um, and make clear decisions, even if there's differentiation uh, in different areas. That's the thing where, you know, government, they, I mean, they seem to be getting a bit better, I'd say, in terms of getting sort of significant local stakeholders on board. You know, Andy Burnham wasn't entirely happy, but he seemed to be a bit happier than Peter Salisbury had be, been uh, in terms of, you know, Leicester, where that was really seemed to sort of come out of nowhere, where the Leicester lockdown happened, which was obviously one of the first ones. So the government is iterating and let's hope they, you know, continue to iterate the way they're doing these local lockdowns so that um, that these, these problems which we've seen uh, now in Manchester don't continue to reoccur. Can I just come in on that? I think um, I think you're right that Andy Burnham uh, was happier than Peter Soulsby had had been, and I think part of that is that there was more data available to Greater Manchester in the run up to this than there had been to Leicester, so they had a better handle on what was going on here themselves, and were not that surprised when the government got in touch on the Thursday afternoon and said we're thinking about bringing in new measures. Um, where Andy Burnham wasn't happy was around the communication of it. And actually, the council leaders were really annoyed as well, because there had been a broad expectation about what the government was going to announce. And then the government actually announced something different, so much so that Greater Manchester put a statement out on the Friday saying, we don't know how many people can currently meet outdoors in Greater Manchester. That's a bit of a ludicrous situation. So I agree with you, they're getting better at it. But I also think that we've slightly fallen foul of August in, you know, there's been no real kind of national political leadership given around this in terms of communications. I know we had that Downing Street press conference on the Friday with Boris Johnson, but an awful lot of that was taken up with other issues that were not specific to this. We've had no politicians nationally really speaking to this issue in Greater Manchester and saying to people clearly, this is what we need you to do and this is why. Um, and so I think that would that would probably be my takeaway from it. That's fascinating. I mean, Nick, we're, we're going to come on to your report in a second. But how much do you think local authorities have to do this by themselves? And how much does it need to be prescribed by central government? I mean, I think in terms of imposing new lockdowns, clearly new legislation might be required and that requires action by central government. But there's certainly more that local authorities could do to spot local outbreaks and trace infections. However, doing that requires better quality data. Last month, central government finally started sharing with local government the Pillar 2 data. That's the data from home testing kits and privately run drive through centres, in addition to the Pillar 1 data from NHS. However, that data usually only includes postcode information, which isn't really granular enough to identify workplace outbreaks. I think the other area where local authorities could do more is on tracing. So to date, local public health teams have largely been cut out of tracing arrangements, with tracing instead done nationally by Public Health England, plus two private companies, Serco and Cytel. 
the public health England traces are reaching almost everyone, but the private companies are only identifying just over half of cases. And that's one of the reasons why some local authorities such as Sandwell have now taken it upon themselves to develop their own tracing systems using their local knowledge to track people down. And it seems to me that it would have been far more sensible to build on this existing local capacity, potentially using outsourcers if necessary, rather than trying to solve the problem with big national contracts. That's interesting. So the way you describe it, I mean, really, there's a, there's a responsibility on each side to do uh, to do more. And Jen, do you think Manchester is going to pick up this um, the sense of what it can do itself, for example, in, in testing, which Nick was just talking about? Uh, well, without sounding like a fangirl for Greater Manchester, I think they've had a pretty good track record on um, on getting ahead of the curve on some of this stuff. So if you if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic, Manchester and Trafford actually were testing on discharge from hospitals right from the beginning, even although the government guidelines um, didn't tell them to do that. And that had, I think you can probably see in the way that the virus played out in Manchester that that did help. Um, they have had uh, both local authority level uh, track and trace systems in place um, for, for some time now, as has every local authority in the country. They've also got a Greater Manchester level um, track and trace system, which kind of coordinates and helps to kind of umbrella that. Certainly what Greater Manchester wants is to be able to get all the track and trace cases that the national system has been unable to track down, which is less than half in Oldham and Rochdale at the moment. Um, and Oldham and Rochdale are among the places in the country with the highest infection rates. So that's a worry. They want those cases passed over to them at least within 48 hours so that their local authority level um, teams can then pick them up and run with them because they've got the uh, boots on the ground and they're highly trained and they understand how this stuff all works. So I would um, I would agree that it would have made more sense to build on the existing expertise and capacity within the local system. But we kind of come back to sort of how fragmented and how conflicted much of the public health system and health response in general has been between central and national. And I think they went for big private sector contracts because they thought they could scale up fast and they could scale up fast that Serco could hire a lot of people but whether or not that then leads to uh, effective track and trace is a different question. Yeah which we may well come on to because that may be the way we're going. Hannah just final thought on this section and you you oversee with me a lot of the big themes of of our work. Um, Which way is this centralisation, localisation debate going? Well, I think that coronavirus is a, a really good way of demonstrating, you know, the value of being able to make decisions and and, and devolve power to a local level, um, because you know geographical differentiation is is real, and people who understand the local area and have the right powers and um, capacity at a local area can potentially move faster in a in a crisis situation like this and you know take the most appropriate action which you know a policymaker uh, sitting in in Whitehall with the best will in the world you know is never going to be able to do um so it's a it's it's you know in a curious way you know a really good demonstrator uh, for the for the value of of decentralizing power which is after all you know something which most politicians you know are fully signed up to the question then which is you know the ongoing question in terms of the way the uk you know system of governance is structured is you know what are the right models and mechanisms for ensure you know what are the things which should be decided at what level um and you know obviously you know there's 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 various sort of different models um 
been set up now you know within england we've got the the national devolution to scotland wales and and uh the the power sharing agreements in 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 northern ireland we have a big mix of different ways of doing things um and i think that you know the um the sort of the city regions will be be looking um at you know their experience during the coronavirus um pandemic and and certainly drawing lessons from their own point of view um you know be interesting to know what, what jen thinks about this about what it tells us about you know whether we've got it right um, in their case um, whether more powers are needed um, or or whether whether things need to be structured differently and presumably central government will also be reflecting on that question well i'm sure it will because you can see the dilemma that um you know they 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 want to be able to say look all kids go back to school and they don't want you know say wales or leicester saying not our kids uh, uh, for example, or and they want to be able to say to Manchester or Leicester, look, we think you should lock down even if um, uh, local people might not to. Jen, last thought on this section. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there's a cultural problem, I think, within government where local level governance is concerned. Uh, and I think I've had the sense during this that perhaps there's a lack of understanding, and I think a lot of people in local authorities would agree with this, about what it is that local authorities actually do particularly given that they have had since 2013 the public health function in there and they do know about public health so I think some of it is as much cultural within Whitehall as anything else I think if you flip it on its head there are probably decisions that local authorities and people like Andy Burnham wouldn't want Andy Burnham doesn't want to be the guy that tells Greater Manchester to lock down. It's very convenient to be able to say that it was Matt Hancock that made the decision. Equally, do you really want to be the person that that, that people turn to when their schools reopen and say, well, you were the one that made that decision? So, you know, you can also turn it on its head and say, sometimes where devolution is concerned, local leaders want the powers that they want, but perhaps don't want the powers that they don't want. Um, I guess my final thought on it would be that there has been a lack of a devolution framework for England. Things have been devolved very patchily. They've been done ad hoc, particularly, you know, starting with Greater Manchester and moving from there. Um, There is a big question now about how that um, moves forward. There is a devolution white paper on the cards, but all of the instincts of the government during this pandemic seem to have been towards centralisation. And the same thing goes, you know, if you look at the planning stuff that's been announced this week as well, that appears to be taking powers away from local authorities. So quite what happens next, um, well, it's going to be interesting. Let's turn now to our second section and uh, the question of how fit public services were for the coronavirus crisis. This week, we published a new report with exactly that title, complete with fitness ratings for how public services such as the NHS, schools and the police were doing right ahead of the coronavirus crisis breaking out. Nick, you were the lead author of this report. What's the answer? The report, which we published in partnership with SIPFA, found that it was a mixed picture. So public services have been able to draw on well-understood command and decision-making structures, experience of responding to emergencies and extensive plans. Uh, That enabled hospitals to quickly repurpose wards, the police to redeploy staff, uh, and prisons to effectively lock down in attempts to tackle the pandemic. 
However, many plans had important gaps and government had failed to learn lessons from previous planning exercises, including exercise Cygnus in 2016, which was the last major exercise to prepare for a pandemic. One of the key things that, that I identified was the potential difficulties around reverse triage. So that's where hospitals discharge people in order to free up uh, additional bed capacity uh, in hospitals, uh, but the, the difficulties that that might cause for social care providers. And as it happened, that is exactly the problem um, that we have had uh, during this crisis. One of the reasons why we failed to learn that lesson was because government did not publish uh, the findings of exercise sickness and most uh, care homes who are obviously likely to be affected by it were completely unaware of its existence uh, and the recommendations that it had made. So although the Department of Health and Social Care has said that they have learned from it and they implemented lessons, it hadn't addressed the key issue, which is that plans for different parts of public services were not well integrated and aligned. Okay, great. So which are the services that were in good shape, in your view, uh, for whatever reasons, um, whether, you know, by design or, or, or just uh, because, because of uh, how they've been run, and which ones um, were in bad shape? So I think if we are looking at um, some that were in good shape, um, I think if you're looking at preparedness, those services that were most practiced at responding to emergencies, so the police, prisons and hospitals, uh, were able to manage the initial lockdown successfully due to a combination of training, uh, experience uh, and culture. Uh, and similarly, local resilience forums, uh, which bring together local authorities, the police, hospitals and other services, have been effective at coordinating uh, local action. I think some of the uh, credit in some cases goes to the preparations that were made for no deal Brexit. So planning for that had strengthened relationships in local resilience forums and meant they'd planned for potential food shortages, meaning they were well placed to deliver food to those who were shielding. Uh, and elsewhere, for example, in the Ministry of Justice and NH England, NHS England, uh, the senior civil servants leading no deal Brexit planning were moved over to the coronavirus. That's interesting. So the Brexit had actually helped uh, some aspects of this planning. Yeah, absolutely. So there were, as I said, there were staff who were already engaged in a kind of planning for disruptions, uh, problems with public order. And clearly, though it's not exactly analogous, uh, some of that planning was helpful. So a good example, the Department for Health and Social Care had improved stockpiles of some drugs uh, and better understood how to mitigate uh, kind of disrupted supply chains. It's worth saying, though, the flip side of that, as other Institute for Government Research has found, was that coronavirus has hugely disrupted planning for no deal Brexit, in part because a lot of those staff who are working on no deal Brexit have been moved over onto coronavirus. Absolutely. And we'll come on to all the Brexit questions in, in a different podcast. Um, and, and also the, the, the work that you and your team are, are now uh, beginning following this report. Um, we'll look at it, how actual services did respond to this, because, of course, some might have responded adroitly. I'm thinking of GPs, particularly when um, um, they hadn't particularly planned to make all the changes that, in fact, they, they ended up doing, um, which is a fascinating huge area. In itself, Hannah, one thing I wanted to pick up, Nick and his team have emphasised in this report um, the consequences of budget cuts over the last decade. Um, where, where do you think this is going um, as, as we look at the financing of these services? 
Well, clearly, you know, the government's had to spend a lot of money in responding to coronavirus. So it's not as though there's going to be, you know, lots of spare cash sloshing around. Um, and the if there's one thing that the the pandemic has has demonstrated, it is, you know, the importance of, of preparedness. There's a, there's a big question, I think, about, you know, what we're preparing for. There's, you know, it's easy to sort of to think that, you know, we should stockpile all the sorts of things and, and, and make sure the spare capacity, which would enable us to deal with, you know, another coronavirus type pandemic. And indeed, you know, we're going to need those sorts of resources in, in the you know, next year or two, presumably, you know, unless uh, a, a vaccine comes through very, very soon. Um, we're going to, going to need all those sort of things to deal with the crisis we're currently in, but there's always a, a danger of preparing for the last war. So I think that you know the government will think, want to think very carefully about preparedness and having having capacity in public services, um, and what any further you know they don't want to call it austerity, but further sort of um, uh, thinking carefully about the finances of public services is is going to do to ability to be prepared. Um, but they need to be be careful about what it is that they um, put put plans in to be prepared for. Yes, and of course we're, we're not that far away. Even though we're still in the height of summer, we're not that far away from the November budget, where the government is going to have to spell out its views on things like how much money it's going to put into public services and whether it responds to the big public clamour for more money into key public services and to reward key workers, if you like. Jane, can you take us a bit into the local politics of this? Uh, The government does not want to use the word austerity at all about the past and absolutely not about the future. But where do you think um, the battle over spending in public services, uh, as opposed to, you know, more tax rises, where's that going to go? What does that feel like in Manchester? Uh, well, I mean, the, one of the things that jumped out at me over the last month is this idea that's been trailed about the future of social care and social care being taken into the NHS uh, and funded by um, new taxation measures, which, of course, I think there's kind of cross-party consensus that there needs to be something done about social care and there needs to be some money found from somewhere. Um, I mean, if you were to take social care out of local authorities, um, you then are left with a bit of a shell because that's the majority of their spending. Um, are you to come back to the question earlier on about devolution? Uh, what you get to the point of asking what what are local authorities for, and asking how they're going to fund it when you take the social care stuff out of the equation. So I think that's going to be a big question. All right, yeah, to move on because this is a fascinating question and it's a really big one. You're, you're talking about them as a shell if the local government, if the social care funding, which is huge, is taken um, out of them. But some of them have said to us. Um, look, the social care stuff has been consuming everything we want to do as a local authority. And we've been having to uh, cut back on parks and libraries and all the things that go for the whole population in order to support this this um, this ballooning uh, cost of social care, which in the end just supports part of the population at any one time. And actually, we'd like to get back to being local government. And this is something that central government ought to look after, as it does the NHS. This is wrong for it to land on, on local government and eat up the whole of its budget. I'm, I'm sure that there are um, varying views across, views across the sector. I mean, whether it's in local government or out of local government, it needs to be um, funded properly, doesn't it? But if you're talking about 
devolution and handing powers down to the local level if you then remove the thing that is the largest part of what local authorities do both in good times and bad times then there is an existential question then about what local government delivers and what it's for especially if you're taking planning uh, to some extent out of their hands as well so that's a kind of broader philosophical question I guess around what local government is I think to come back to the question about preparedness we talked a bit about um care home discharges and the relationship between the NHS, social care, other parts of the system. I think what's been quite interesting in Greater Manchester is that not as a result of devolution, but as a result of the, well, as, as a as a secondary result of devolution, not because they have enormous amounts of power here that other places don't have, but as a result of a track record of different parts of the system working more closely together rather than in silos, it was interesting to see the way Greater Manchester's response differed. So, for example, on PPE, when we were going through that huge PPE crisis and the PPE um, provision from central government basically uh, dried up, Greater Manchester had a mutual aid system going on across the boundaries between social care, between local authorities, between police and between hospitals. And my sense is that that is relatively unusual. But that is the sort of the upshot, I guess, of at least 10 years of all the different public agencies in Greater Manchester working quite closely together. And you've seen that in other ways as well, including around the hospital discharge situation, um, where social care and the NHS here talk to each other an awful lot more. There's also a cross-local authority social care dashboard, for example, which tracks what's going on in care homes. Again, that's something that you might not get in another part of the country. So there was an extra little bit of resilience, I think, in the Greater Manchester system that might have been missing in in other places. Um, But the funding question is as acute for GM as it is uh, for anywhere else. And I, I think my final point on the funding thing is what's happening now is this whole ongoing row about local authorities and whether they get reimbursed for um, what they spent during the pandemic. If you take local authorities in places like Manchester and there'll be other kind of particularly deprived urban places that have seen their income, their, their revenue drop significantly over the last decade and more so when we know that those cuts have played out unevenly. A lot of those local authorities have adapted to try and bring in income through new places. So, for example, Greater Manchester was propping up its budget from its dividend in the ownership of Manchester Airport. And the government has not committed to providing the full reimbursement of of that commercial revenue income. So that is a big storm cloud hanging over an awful lot of local government. And no one really knows how that's going to be resolved, if it will be resolved in the November budget. Huge question mark there. Jen, thanks for that. And Nick, last thought on this this section, local government without social care, what about its responsibility for infrastructure? So honestly, I think the suggestion of rolling social care into the NHS is a bit of a solution in search of a problem. There are very clear problems with social care, such as the overall level of funding, the access to publicly funded care, and for some people, the fact that uh, many some have to sell their homes because they're hit with catastrophic costs. I, I'm not sure that rolling it into the NHS really solves any of those. I think that even if it was part of the NHS, acute care is still going to win out. Uh, it doesn't do anything for the level of funding, and while it might help integration a little bit, there are plenty who bemoan the lack of integration between acute care and mental health services, uh, for example, and those are all part of the NHS already. Indeed, I think the Greater Manchester example shows that there's probably more of a case for devolving 
uh, NHS services to more local powers than there is for doing uh, the reverse. But I think the kind of the big question that needs to be answered, and all parties agree on this, is that more money needs to be put into the system. The difficulty is the politics of how you raise that money, uh, and it's a particularly difficult question for this government to resolve, uh, given that they have committed uh, in their manifesto not to increasing uh, VATs, national insurance or income tax and they've committed to protecting people's homes and that's a huge potential source of money that's already been counted out. Mm. Well it had been counted out before coronavirus. Manifesto uh, feels a long long time ago and uh, we'll talk about all those things coming up to the November budget which is going to be really quickly upon us. But let's turn now to our third final discussion uh, back in Westminster with one half of the Palace of Westminster, and that's the House of Lords. Parliament had risen for a truncated summer recess by the time that Boris Johnson quietly announced his latest round of appointments to the, the House of Lords, but those 36 names did not go without comment. Alongside former Conservative ministers such as Ken Clark and Philip Hammond, we've got the Brexit-backing cricketer Ian Botham, the Prime Minister's brother Joe Johnson, and the owner of the Evening Standard, a paper which has long supported Mr. Johnson. Not surprisingly, there were accusations of cronyism, and the upper house is now going to be around 830 members, rather frustrating all-party attempts to shrink the size of this. Anna, every round of Lord's appointment seems to bring cries of complaint. How does this one stack up? Well, it's not necessarily worse in the sense that, you know, there is a long... um, uh, history of uh, um, uh, of prime ministers uh, putting people into the House of Lords, where the sort of accusations of, of cronyism are, you know, are very easy to make. I mean, Boris Johnson has probably done pretty well in covering all the different categories of um, sort of cronyism, which you, yeah, you know, you think you might be possible. So, apart from, uh, apart from women, he's taken some stick on that. Yes, but, you know, in terms of, you know, he's put his relative in, he's put his brother in, he's put his friends in, um, he's put MPs who've lost their seats, um, and he's put people who recently supported him on his critically difficult um, uh, political issue of Brexit. So all the different sort of ways in which you might be accused of cronyism are, are there. Right, except what is, not his predecessor, yes. <laughs> no, indeed. Um, yeah. Her husband getting, getting a knighthood, yeah. Uh, I mean, what's what's um, particularly bad about this tranche is is, is um, probably the numbers. So, thirty six is a very large um, uh, number, particularly given uh, as you as you implied, there's recently been you know quite a lot of cross party agreement, and you know even Theresa May had sort of nominally signed up to the idea that the Lords should aim for a um, two out one in approach. So that uh, prime ministers, you know, you know, he, he would have to be getting rid of uh, seventy-two uh, peers from the house, or expecting seventy-two to uh, uh, resign or, or retire in the in the next year, and that seems pretty unlikely in order to put thirty-six in. So well, that well, seems I to have. Uh, there is a natural attrition, but there well. is, there is, and particularly given the age profile of the lords. But it seems unlikely that we're going to lose ten uh, percent of the lords in, in the next year. Um, so, so that is is problematic. You know, it's not only one of the biggest legislatures in the world now. Uh, there were real practical problems in the House of Lords. I think in terms of participation, you know, there were far more peers who want to uh, 
participate in committees, then there are spaces on committees for them to do so. That, so they've had to shorten the amount of time that people can uh, can serve on committees in order to accommodate more over a period of time. And we've really seen in relation to, to coronavirus, interestingly, with the remote uh, systems that have been introduced in the House of Lords, so many peers uh, wanting to participate uh, in debates that the time limits on speeches in, in the Lords, which previously, you know, were, were very um, unusual. Um, now, you know, they, for some debates, they've had a one minute um, time limit. So that really is going to reduce the quality of the input that this number of, of peers can can make to, to the work of the House of Lords. Right. So all kinds of practical problems. And um, this one, as you said, may not be worse in some ways than, than, than others, though, as you, you uh, marvellously described, touches all the bases of, of cronyism. But um, I'm thinking of what, what Robert Trimsley wrote in the, in the Financial Times, of saying that people put up with this because... Um, People don't rush for big institutional change in, in, in the UK, and it sort of works. On the other hand, there is something really repellent in a modern democracy uh, about this kind of thing. You're saying, where, where do you think the debate is is going on this? Because, as you said, there, there was an informal agreement to shrink um, the House, and, and that's already broken down. It really makes the UK, you know, it makes it very difficult for the UK to, to have a leg to stand on when you look at sort of um, governance issues in other countries that we we have, uh, you know, one of our the houses of our legislature, which still has, you know, hereditary peers, has the bishops, has, um, you know, all these, you know, cronyism uh, ascribed appointments. And, and so that's not brilliant, I don't think, from a from a global Britain point of view. But I think, again, you know, it's the practicality which is going to come into play here in the sense that changing the House of Lords is just a massive headache from a political point of view. Nick Clegg, you know, um, tried to do it. Um, when he was and, to be Prime Minister. Exactly. Um, and it just absorbs a huge amount of political capital when there were a lot of other things that we know that this government wants to do. And I just can't see it being a priority. Actually, you know, being able to put people in the House of Lords is one of the remaining sort of aspects of patronage available to a prime minister and it's really difficult to get them to, to give up on that um, and reforming the, the the house of lords would almost you know inevitably take that power away from them yes yeah, so as you said it doesn't go without international comment i remember at the time of tony blair's reforms one middle eastern ambassador saying rather dryly oh if that's what he means by democracy getting rid of one whole house of parliament and replacing it with his friends we can do that tomorrow. <laughs> um, Jen, um, there's been talk of moving the House of Lords to um, York. A uh, symbol or useful or both? Um, <laughs> I, I think I'm sort of, I'm slightly baffled by it, really. I think it makes sense uh, in terms of, you know, going to a part of the North that is appealing to the people that would be asked to relocate. You know, I'd like to see them uh, I don't know. I'd like to see them brought to certain other areas that I won't name, and and also politically, I think it sort of makes sense from a conservative leaning point of view that York is is sort of the area that they that they have chosen. It feels largely tokenistic uh, to me. I think on the, on the Lord's appointment thing, tokens can matter though. Tokens can matter, but I thought it was interesting reading some of the sort of background briefing stuff around it that, uh, you know, senior civil servants and various people involved in that potential move have been looking at 
what they could get for the equivalent of a of a three bed terrace in London compared to an enormous villa in Harrogate or something, and that that was just kind of the top of their top of their list in terms of what the benefits of moving north would be. I'm finding it slightly difficult to see how much wider benefit it would have. It does it does send a message out to decentralise, but I think you need something a bit more structural than just sending peers up to York, if I'm absolutely honest. And Nick, do you think this is going to change the feel of the House of Lords? We've now got some uh, leading um, Brexiteers in, in, their, in, in what was thought to be a very much a uh, remain-leaning Brexit-blocking chamber? There are certainly going to be some new pro-Brexit voices in there, though many of them, such as Kate Hurry and Gisela Stewart, are long-standing parliamentarians. It's also worth noting that some of the other new peers, such as Ken Clark and Ruth Davidson, were vocal campaigners for Remain, so the new batch won't change the composition of the House too much overall. I think it's also worth noting that the debate is moving on. We've left the EU and the transition period will almost certainly end at the end of this year. The new Brexit supporting peers may be united in their support for leaving, uh, but will have different views on what future trading relationships with the EU and other countries should look like. And they may not necessarily support the government on that. Very important reminder that that and all that still to play for on the rest of this year. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap up this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Hannah White, Nick Davies and Jen Williams. Thank you all for listening at home. If you want to hear more of our work and discussions, please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can listen at Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Do leave us a review. It always goes down well, whatever you say. And you can find all our work, including Nick's terrific report, at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So if you're edging your way back into an office, and I should say we have edged back into the IFG office this week, or you're slipping away for a summer holiday or maybe stuck at home, then do seek out the IFG team to help entertain you. See you next week.